Well, this morning, I don't have anything to preach. I do, but I don't have anything that I've set up to preach. We finished Luke chapter 12, which we went to on the heels of 1 Corinthians. So we were in 1 Corinthians for a long time. We finished it. We went to Luke chapter 12. We did seven uh, weeks in Luke chapter 12. And now, what are we going to do? Um, this is a, a, an odd scenario for me for a lot of reasons. Uh, number one, this is just a strange time in my life in general. But uh, this week will be the last week that I'm with you for a while. I've mentioned already, Steve has too, that he is going to be preaching for uh, what's probably going to amount to somewhere four to six weeks. And so I'm not going to start a new series uh, and then expect you to remember it in four to six weeks. Not that you couldn't, but um, Caitlin Gillen be okay with her notes that she vigorously takes. She just go right back to the page. Some of you uh, take good notes, but we're kind of in one of those odd one-off scenarios. So what, what do we do? I won't ask for suggestions. Uh, the time for that has passed. Um, but I have settled on something that is a bit of a summation for where my own personal meditations have been for a while now. However, it is uh, not on one passage, but it's on one storyline throughout a portion of the Old Testament. Uh, and the storyline is one that we cannot cover um, with reading every single verse. We would simply be here uh, for a long, long time. So today we're going to have uh, what we might call a topical message, but will clearly be from uh, God's Word, but it's going to require you to turn the page quite a bit. We're going to have to uh, live off selections of passages instead of entire passages themselves. So start by turning to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Now, I don't know if you have ever taught or invested yourself in, in teaching others before. Um, if you have, uh, you know that sometimes uh, while teaching other people, uh, you, you are the one who gets the most out of whatever it is you're working through. Um, we had a new couple of new hires at work this week, and one of them went, went around following somebody, learning how to do all the different tasks through our computer system. And he did that for a day. And I said, how are you doing with this? And he said, I think I'm doing okay. I think I'm doing okay. Then the next day, his job was to teach somebody how to do it. And he spent the next two days teaching somebody how to do it. And, and he came back to me at the end of the second day. He said, you know, me having to show this other new guy how to do this, that really helped. And I have that experience all the time. When you're teaching, you have to think through the stuff that when you are learning, sometimes just floats in and out of your attention span. I've been teaching in 1 Samuel to the youth in Sunday school for a while now. And my, my brain has has continued to get stuck there in my day-to-day, uh, you know, walk with the Lord in Monday through Saturday. My, my mind continues to wander back there. And I've come to a couple determinations um, on some stuff that I'd wondered about for a long time. In Acts uh, 13, you don't need to turn there, but in Acts 13, uh, the Apostle Paul is giving a great dialogue, a great uh, testimony to uh, the synagogue, to the Jewish people, and also the Gentiles who are in Antioch. And in the midst of this great testimony that Paul is giving in the New Testament, he says that 
uh, David is a man after God's own heart. And he's quoting 1 Samuel when he says that. And he doesn't stop and explain what that means. But we do read in 1 Samuel that, yes, David is a man after God's own heart. As a matter of fact, uh, Lord willing, we'll read that verse uh, here in 1 Samuel chapter 13. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Um, how is David, for all of his great successes and yet for all of his moral failings, how is David a man after God's own heart? And this is what my mind has continued to run to. And when you read in 1 Samuel, you're reading about a particular storyline. So let me set the scene briefly. We know back in Genesis that God designates Abraham and through his offspring, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And we know that uh, Abraham has Isaac and Jacob and that from Jacob, who is renamed Israel, come the tribes of Israel. We know that through one of those sons, Joseph, they end up in Egypt under Pharaoh. And after hundreds of years, Moses is commissioned to go get them out of Egypt and finally fulfill the promises of God made to Abraham that he would move them into this promised land. And we know about the plagues and the crossing of the, of the, of the Dead Sea. And we, 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 know, we know all of these things, how they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. We know how Joshua took the mantle from Moses and led them in and they defeated the Canaanites. And the story of how they get into the promised land is familiar to us, even if it might take us a minute or two to piece those things together. I think most of us could probably get what's required to describe how this happened. But when they get to the promised land, they don't have a king and they don't have a temple. They, they don't fulfill all that God commissioned them to do under Joshua. They don't drive out all of the Canaanites. They come up short and for hundreds of years, they are in a time period which is known as the time of the judges. And it's this time period where Israel would wander away from God and then God would raise up someone among them to overthrow the enemies which God had uh, inflicted upon them in judgment, and to revive the nation, and then to judge the nation for a period of time, to keep them righteous and faithful before God. And then the judge would die, the judge would, would pass, and the whole cycle would repeat. Israel would wander away from God. Their enemies would come in and would afflict them, would enslave them. God would raise up a judge who would overthrow the enemies and then judge for a period of time. And some of these we know. Samson is one of these judges. Gideon is one of these judges. We know some of these names. And if you turn to the book of Judges, you can read through the whole time period. But after the time period of the judges comes the time period of the kings. And Samuel is really the transition between those two periods. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. And you might know a little bit about the story of Samuel. Even if you've forgotten, it's easy to recall. Samuel is the promised son that God gave to Hannah from her husband Elkanah when she couldn't have children. Samuel grows up dedicated to the Lord uh, with the priest Eli. Eli's sons are wicked, Hophni and Phinehas. And so God judges them and destroys them and 
Hophni and Phinehas and Eli all die and Samuel takes the mantle of the judge of Israel and, and truly serves almost in some priestly fashions too during his time of judging. And after a long period of Samuel judging and them having peace over their enemies, the enemies come again and the people demand a king. They say, Samuel, your sons are not good and honorable men, just like Eli's sons before you are not good and honorable men. Give us a king so that we can be like all the nations around us. Because they didn't have a king, they didn't truly have a kingdom. They didn't have a tax system. They didn't have a standing military. They didn't have any sort of people of war, captains, commanders. They didn't have a war engine, and so their enemies would attack, and they were sick of simply waiting on God to raise up a judge to defend them. They said, give us a king that we can be like all the other nations, and we'll have a king, and he'll have an army, and, and he'll have commanders, and he'll have a palace, and then when our enemies attack us, the king will save us, and this displeased Samuel. Samuel saw it as a rejection of him, and God tells Samuel, don't worry, Samuel, it's not you who they are rejecting, it's me. I've been their king. Um, and when they've been unfaithful to me, I've allowed them to undergo judgment. And when they have returned in repentance, it's been at my providence of delivering them from their enemies. And they don't want this cycle with me anymore. So give them what they ask. And so Samuel calls an assembly of all the people. And Saul, whom God had shown him, would be king, is picked out as king. Now Saul is described, this first king of Israel, as a man head and shoulders above everyone else. A young man, a strong man, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. So from the smallest of the tribes, and yet this is the chief of the smallest of the tribes in terms of stature and strength, but he's young. Matter of fact, when they cast lots to determine who will be king, Saul already knows where the lot is going to fall because Samuel has already told him in a previous visit that God had anointed him. Samuel's already put the oil on his head. But Saul is afraid and he goes. And when the lot falls upon uh, the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's afraid. And so, okay, the king's going to come from the tribe of Benjamin. God, now show us of what family of the tribe of Benjamin the king is going to come. And they cast their lots again and it falls upon Saul's family. And they cast, the tribe again, they cast the lot again for all the men of Saul's family, and it comes and it falls on Saul. And they say, where's Saul? He's going to be king, and nobody can find him because he's hiding. He's in among the baggage, the luggage of the assembled people from, you know, this is a long journey. All the people of Israel are coming to anoint a king. He's hiding literally in the luggage because he knows where the lot's going to fall. And he doesn't, he's, a, he's terrified. He's afraid he doesn't want to be king. So they drag him from the luggage and they make him king and, and he gets started and uh, he's moved with zeal when the Philistines attack and a lot of the tribes of Israel, you know, they say, well, we don't want to come and fight with King Saul. You know, maybe they wanted somebody from their tribe to be king. And even though the lot fell on Saul, this young guy, this tall guy, this kid hiding among the baggage, they don't want to go with them. And Saul's moved to rage because he's trying to assemble his armies to go fight the Philistines. That's what he's supposed to do as the king, as the Philistines have attacked the city. And the people aren't going to come. And so he takes these oxen and he hacks them to pieces. 
like just butchers these oxen. And he sends the pieces out to all the tribes of Israel. And he says, so will be done to any man who doesn't come and fight with me. (laughs) And that gets everybody's attention. And so they show up and they fight with Saul against the Philistines and they win. At the time, the Israelites didn't even have swords and weapons. Saul was one of the only guys with a sword. They're fighting with farm equipment, but they win. And Saul's established as king, and everything is going well, and Saul begins to gain confidence, and he begins to gain stature, and, you know, the people come to Saul, and they say, hey, all these worthless guys who didn't report to you the first time, when you called them to assemble, we should kill them all. And he says, don't kill them all. You know, he's showing a little bit of prudence and wisdom. He says, no, don't kill them all. This is not a time for slaughter and judgment. It's a time for peace. And he shows a bit of shrewd political thinking. And he establishes himself as king. Um, Years go by and Saul gains confidence and a throne. And then in chapter 13, the Philistines are once again threatening And Saul is assembling his people to fight against them, and the threat is real. And Samuel has told Saul, in seven days I'll show up and we'll offer a sacrifice. Now again, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, there are rules about offering sacrifice. Not anybody can just do this. So Samuel says, you know, seven days I'll show up and we'll do the sacrifice the right way. Well, verse 7 of chapter 13, middle of the verse, start of a new paragraph. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Trembling. That's a word to circle in the text. They are afraid. They are afraid of the Philistines, who are described in verse 5 as having 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. They are afraid. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. Now he's really afraid. The people start to disperse. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. He wasn't supposed to do that. By the way, if you wonder, if you ever read in the text, just as an aside, not really relevant to this morning, but if you wonder why he wasn't supposed to do that, there is a man who will be king and priest over Israel forever, and it's Jesus. It's not Saul. Saul unwittingly assumes a responsibility that is reserved for one man. (laughs) Nevertheless, He offered the sacrifice. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed that the Philistines gathered together in Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal. I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. He was afraid. He says he was trembling. The people start to leave. So he rejuvenates them with the big burnt offering, revs them all up. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. 
you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And here it is. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. What does that mean? And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Saul, afraid, makes the blunder out of fear and loses the promise of the continual kingdom. And here is our first reference to this. You are not a man after God's own heart. And God is... God is... Searching for one. God is appointing one. God will commission one. This is what Paul is talking about in Acts 13. Well, turn over to Samuel chapter 15. Now in Samuel chapter 15, Saul is ordered to go fight an enemy. He is ordered from the Lord to go fight the enemy. He is told directly by God to go fight the enemy. And when he has found the enemy, to completely wipe out the enemy. Don't leave anyone or anything alive. Don't take any spoil. Don't take any of the, of the sheep or the oxen. Completely destroy the enemy. Which for you and I say, well, you know, I don't know if that was a good decision that God made. And if you wonder with that, be careful. Be careful, because a lot of the men of Israel wonder the same thing. Why should all of this stuff be destroyed? And so they decide, we want to keep a lot of this stuff. They go and they fight the enemy. They have a great victory. But when it comes time to do what God had commanded them, they start to wonder, perhaps as you would wonder, well, is that really wise? After all, why shouldn't we? And Saul lets them keep the stuff and spares Agag the king. And then, verse 10 of chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. When was the last time you were that grieved? Samuel loved Saul. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told to Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he had set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. So Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. The armies of the bad guys have been destroyed, Samuel. It's a good day. It's a happy day. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep? In my ears, and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. <laughs> Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we've utterly destroyed. Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And then he tells Saul what God had told him about losing the kingdom. But verse 20, 
Saul's not willing to accept this. He says, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I've utterly destroyed, I brought back Agag. I've destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took up the plunder of the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things, which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So Samuel says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice or as an obedience? You think you can buy God off? I can disobey him and then just give an offering and which one does God like more, your offering or obedience? Saul realizes his error and in verse 24, now listen to this, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because, and here's the underline, I feared the people. And obeyed their voice. Now his first big mess up. He was afraid. Trembling. The Philistines. More than the sand on the sea are ready to attack. And the people are starting to scatter. So he disobeys God and Samuel. The second time. The people. The people are wanting to take treasure for themselves. Possession for themselves. And he says, I was afraid to tell the people no. And so I let him keep the stuff. You see a pattern emerging here? Turn over to chapter 17. This one we know really well. David and Goliath is the name of the subtitle. Perhaps it should have been Saul and Goliath. We know the story. The Philistine champion shows up. The battle lines are assembled. They're at a stalemate. The Israelites on one side, the Philistines on the other side, a valley in between, neither one wanting to compromise and sacrifice the safety of high ground and charge down into the valley. But here is Goliath going down into the valley and taunting day after day after day. Slandering God, slandering the Israelites, slandering their king. Here is the tallest of the Philistines, the champion of the Philistines, the mighty man of the Philistines. And he's simply asking if there's a single champion of Israel to go and fight him. And of all the men in Israel, who but the tallest and the strongest and the anointed by God, who but King Saul himself should have rode out into the battlefield to conquer the Philistine who was slandering the name of the Lord, slandering the people of Israel and slandering the throne of Saul which God had established. Who should have gone down? But Saul wouldn't go. Day after day after day, he wouldn't go. The anointed of God the king of God's people. Why wouldn't he go? Verse 10, chapter 17. The Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul and all Israel dismayed and greatly afraid. And then we know what happens. David, sent by dad to go reinforce his brothers on the battle line, hears what's happening, sees what's happening, can't believe what's happening. 
Day after day, this guy's doing this. And he starts to talk. What's going to happen to the person who goes out there and kills him? They say, oh, they're going to be rich and wealthy. The king will give him one of his daughters. That sounds pretty good to David. His brother, hearing David ask these questions, says, who are you to ask these questions? You just go back and tend that small flock of our father. And David says, what have I done? Verse 29, is there not a cause for me to say these things? You've got a champion of the other army going down there defying God every day. Is there not a cause for me to say that he should be killed? Don't I have a good reason? Verse 31, the words of David which were spoken were heard. David is the only one saying this kind of stuff. It gets back to Saul. David is called to report to Saul. David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. With the Philistine. With Goliath. David is not afraid. Saul is afraid. The Israelites are afraid. David tells all those who are afraid, what? Let no man's heart fail. <laughs> Nobody needs to be afraid of this guy. We know the dialogue between David, I've killed a bear, I've killed a lion, and Saul says, okay, take all my armor and the sword and everything. David puts it on and says, I can't walk with this stuff on. This is not my size. David is not a head and shoulders taller above everyone in Israel. I can't do this. So he takes a staff and a sling and five stones from a brook, and he marches out there. He tells Goliath just what he thinks of him, and he kills him. The people are excited. The Philistines go on a run. Israel pursues. Chapter 18, 1 Samuel 18, verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. Saul set him over the men of war. He was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in, Saul, in the sight of Saul's servants. And it happened as they were coming home. This big pursuit of the Philistines, David takes command of, of Saul's armies. I mean, David takes control of the troops, and it's a rout. Huge military victory for this guy who was a shepherd. And while they're coming back to celebrate, the Philistines been defeated. The people start to sing. Verse 7, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Verse 8, Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me only thousands. Verse 12, now Saul was afraid of David because, of the Lord, because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Again, Saul is afraid. Verse 28, after Saul gives David his daughter in a plot to see David killed, and the plot doesn't work out, David manages to kill way more Philistines than Saul thought he was going to kill and earns the right to marry his daughter, Michael. Verse 28, then Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him and Saul was still more afraid of David. Turn to chapter 20.
We see Saul trying to protect his throne, saying that David is going to usurp Jonathan. David is going to to take the throne for himself. Verse 30, Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. He said, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? to the nakedness of your mother. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now Saul's ready to murder. Murder, David. Jonathan tells David. Now, an interesting thing starts to happen in David's life at this point in time. In chapter 19, verse 5, David has his life at about the best it could possibly be for a young man. I want you to think about David's circumstances for a second. I want you to think through this. You don't have to look at it, but just think through this for a second. David goes from being a shepherd boy. Out of faith, he kills Goliath. The people elevate him. He's given a commission and a place as a commander in Saul's army. He's given a place at Saul's table. He's, he's an officer of Israel. When they celebrate their, their feasts and their festivals, he goes, he's one of the select few who goes and eats at the king's table. He's an officer. More than being an officer, he has married into the king's family. The the king's daughter, Michael, is his wife. He has a home. He has land. He has prestige. He has fame. He has power. That's how far David has risen. And the fall is equally as dramatic It's at one of these feasts that Saul is conspiring as David comes to the table to eat as an officer of the court to have him killed, murdered. David catches wind of that. Saul tries to assassinate David in his home. His wife warns him and he flees. David goes to Samuel. Saul sends assassins to kill him while David is with the prophets in Samuel. They can't do it. Saul himself goes to kill David. He can't do it. God doesn't let him. Then this incident with the new moon feast and festival and David flees. And now David's on the run. The king has tried to kill him at least five times. Twice with spears thrown at him assassinated in his own home, assassinated at a feast, and then attempts to to assassinate him when he's with Samuel and the prophets. Three different attempts when he's with Samuel and the prophets. So if you're counting all those, seven times Saul has tried to kill David, and his, his life is no longer safe. And David leaves his home. David leaves his people. David leaves his 
place in Saul's court. He leaves his wife, who we find out Saul then marries off to another man. He's on the run, and the only people who are with him are 400 men who remain faithful to David and who were deeply indebted in the kingdom. So they go with David. 400 men and their families. And now David is a man on the run. He's got 400 men and their families in his care and responsibility and nowhere to go. So they go to this place called Keilah, which was a city in the south of Judah. Now that's David's tribe. And they go there, this is chapter 23, because the people of Keilah are being threatened by an invasion. So David says, should we go and help the people of Keilah? And the Lord says, go. And so he goes down there and they repel the enemies. And now it's like, okay, finally some peace because Keilah's a city and now his men and their families have a home, and they, it's, this is a walled city, and, and, you know, again, South Judah, this is a place that they can call their own. Saul finds out that David and his men are in Keilah, and he starts to march there, but this is a city, this is a fortified city, it won't be easy for Saul to take David, and, and so David inquires of the Lord, when Saul gets here, will the people of Keilah betray me? And deliver me to Saul? Will they open their gates and, and march me out to avoid the conflict? I've come to save the people of Keilah from their enemies. They've let me establish a home here. But when Saul shows up with his armies, will they fight with me? Will they stand with me? And the Lord says, they will not. They'll deliver you over to Saul. Okay. So he leaves. He goes to the desert strongholds the wilderness strongholds in the deserts of Judah. There are these walled strongholds that you would occupy in a time of war, but in, when you're not in a time of war, they're just, they're just strongholds in the desert, unoccupied. And he stays with his men in these strongholds. And then the Ziphites find out where David is staying, and they go to Saul, and they betray David, and they say, we know exactly where he is. We know the stronghold. We know the place in the wilderness. And Saul comes with his armies, and they run David out of the stronghold, and they chase him around the backside of a mountain, and they almost wipe him out. But then they're called away because the Philistines have invaded before they can finish David and his men off. So David finds out he can't stay in any of these strongholds anymore. So instead he goes... This is chapter 24, and he stays with these men in the wilderness of Engedi. So he stays literally not in a stronghold, in a desert where there's an oasis, an Engedi where his men can at least get water and pitch tents. And again, he's betrayed. And again, Saul comes. And this is the first time David catches Saul in the, in the cave and has the chance to kill him and refuses to do it. And he holds up this piece of Saul's garment. He says, see, I could have killed you. And Saul repents and says, you're right, David. Forgive me. Come back home and return to the land. But David's not having any of that. He, does, he, knows, he knows the game. Even if Saul's genuine in the moment, he knows Saul is not a trustworthy man. So Saul takes his armies and, go home, and goes home. So then David goes out into the wilderness. Not of En Gedi, not by the oasis, just the wilderness. 
And again, Saul comes to kill him with his armies in the desert. This is chapter 26. Again and again and again. And this time, Saul camping out in the wilderness. David, who his men are in the wilderness, sneaks into the camp at night. And he takes Saul's spear and his pitcher of water. And he sneaks back out of the camp in the morning. He stands again at a distance. He said, I could have killed you. And Saul again repents, oh, David, come home. Oh, David, I'm so sorry. You're right. Even saying, I know one day you'll be king over Israel. And David says, may the Lord. David's not having any. He doesn't say, I forgive you, Saul. He says, may the Lord. I didn't kill you, but may the Lord have vengeance upon his enemies. And at this time, David despairs. Look at chapter 27. Saul goes home. David is presumably safe again until the next time. But think about the taxing nature of this. 400 men and their families, their wives and their children that you have responsibility for. 400 men who have sworn to you. 400 men who have found out that there's no safe place in all the world for them. And David's like, I mean, Saul's not, like, going to die anytime soon of old age. He's like, what do, we, what do we do? Look at chapter 27, verse 1. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. Is that a statement of great faith? No. God had told David he was going to be king someday. What is this? This is David giving up. This is a man pushed beyond his limits, betrayed too many times, chased off too many times. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. Now, look back up in chapter 26. Look at David's plea to Saul this last time when he holds up the spear in the pitcher. Look at what David says. Verse 17, Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son, David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept an offering. In other words, if you're here to kill me from God, I'll lay down my life. But if it's the children of men... And that's what was happening, stirring up all of Saul's fears. May they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. That's like totally foreign to us. But to serve the God of Israel, one had to make offerings and one was supposed to go to the temple and one was supposed to observe the feast and one was supposed to present themselves to the priests. This was important. This is the law. And David has been deprived of doing it for years. He's saying men have stirred you up against me, not merely making me an outcast in the land, but have said he's not going to be allowed to serve our God. Tell him to go serve other gods. He has no place here. David is despairing in chapter 27. It doesn't say David was serving other gods. It's saying he saw no options ahead of him. He saw no future. He saw no way forward. All he could see was his death. 
All he could see was the death of his men. All he could see was the slaughter of their families. He said, I should escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. So that's what he does. He goes to the Philistines. And you know what he finds in the Philistines? He finds a friend. The king of the Philistines ends up befriending David and trusting David. David fights for the Philistines. Now David lies to the king and says, oh, I'm going and I'm raiding Judah. I'm going and I'm raiding the Israelites. When really he was raiding enemies so far south that the word would never get back to the king of the Philistines. The king of the Philistines gives David a home, Ziklag, a city. His men, his family, their families settle there and they have for the first time in a long time a place. Children are raised. There's peace. No one's pursuing them anymore. And then God is ready to visit his judgment upon Saul. You get this in chapter 28, by the way. Saul sees the Philistines Marching against him, Saul is afraid of what's going to happen. Saul goes to a witch and says, conjure up Samuel, the ghost of Samuel, so that I can talk to Samuel, so he can tell me how I can get out of this jam. All the Philistines are going to kill me. David's gone. My, me and my armies are going to be wiped out. And the lady's like, well... King Saul has made it illegal to do witchcraft in the land. If I were to try to do this thing, I'd be killed. And then he says, I am King Saul. You know, he doesn't tell him, but he says, do this thing. And, and she tries to conjure up Samuel. And you could tell the lady's a fraud because when Samuel actually shows up, she's dismayed. Whatever, whatever normally happens when she tries to do this witchcraft stuff, it's not talking to a real person who's dead, but God sends Samuel and the woman is terrified. She says, you are King Saul. And Saul said, don't worry about it. I'm not going to kill you. Just let me talk to Samuel. And Samuel tells him, you're going to die. Verse 5, it's worth noting, of chapter 28. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Verse 20, when he hears from Samuel, immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. Saul is a fearful man. He is a man driven by his fears. He's not a weak man. He's a powerful man. He's a strong man. He's a capable man. He's a man who is afraid and takes it in his own hands to deal with his fears. David gets told by the Philistine king, we're going to go raid the Israelites and go fight King Saul. David says, okay, I'll go with you. Now, there is nothing in the text to indicate that David is not sincere when he says this. He is ready to go to war with Agag. He is ready to go fight the Israelites, which he hasn't done to this point. The anointed king of Israel is ready to go slaughter Israelites. But the other Philistines reject David in chapter 29. 
the other lords of the Philistines tell Agag, no, 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 he's going to get out there among the Israelites and he'll turn on us. He cannot come. Send them back to Ziklag. And so they do. And do you know what they find when they get back to Ziklag? Ziklag, all the women and children there has been raided and pillaged. All the people have been taken captive as slaves. Look at verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south of Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters taken captive. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a worse nightmare than this? This is the lowest of the lows. There is no point lower for David. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. These 400 who <laughs> had been through everything with him they're at their end of it too. What's left to fight for? They're not fighting for Israel. They're not fighting for their families. They're not fighting for their children. They're not fighting for their homes. There's nothing left. For the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. I don't know how people can say that they don't get anything when they read the Bible. I don't know how you could read this and not relate to this. Every man grieved for his sons and his daughters. But then here it is. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now there is no indication that David had had much of a relationship with the Lord his God at all during this time period. Certainly, God was not the one telling him to go fight the Philistines. He's not inquiring of God anymore. God didn't tell him, go fight the Philistine or go fight the Israelites, and then the Philistines will send you back. And David, David is at the lowest of lows spiritually here. And when all is lost and everything is broken and his life is about to be surrendered, he strengthens himself in the Lord his God. Are you grateful for the faithfulness of the Lord our God? I'm serious, are you, are you grateful for the faithfulness of God? I am. Man, I am grateful for God's faithfulness. Life is like this. You go through these spiritual valleys and peaks, but God is always faithful. David said to the Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, bring the ephod here, and now he, require, he inquires of God, what should I do? And this really spurs the whole story to David's you know, retaking all of the people who had been lost, not one of them dead. David, uh, Saul dies in the conflict. David's anointed king. This is the pivotal return. Everything in David's life changes at this point. 
He gets back into the land of Israel. He's established king. There's a civil war between one of Saul's descendants and uh, David's people emerge victorious. He takes Jerusalem, the great city of God. He builds it. Everything hangs right here. David is strengthened of the Lord. And so we'll return to the question. What is the difference between a man after God's own heart? What is the difference between David and Saul? And I am settling on the conclusion for myself that Saul was a man of fear and David was a man of faith. Um, And I've been wrestling for months now with this contrast, this dichotomy, this thing of fear versus faith. I've been wrestling with it for a long time, a, a while. And I really think these things as polar opposites uh, are, are worth considering for our own lives. I want you to turn with me, we'll end at this passage, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll read just verses 3 through 12. Now this is Paul at a crucial time in his own life. He writes the letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, knowing that he is near death. All of his companions have abandoned him. He is in a dungeon. He is going to stand before the Romans. He, This is Paul. Paul's all is lost kind of situation. And he writes to Timothy. And if you, it's only, what, four chapters, I think, 2 Timothy. You should read 2 Timothy from the perspective of a dying man. But he writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you, Timothy, in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. He says, Timothy, what I love, what fills me with joy the most, what makes me most happy when I think of you is the great faith that I know is in you. And this faith dwelt in your grandmother, Lois. It dwelt in your mother, Eunice. And I am persuaded, I believe, Timothy, that this faith is in you also. Now, when you say to somebody, I am persuaded, you, know, you, you say that to someone who is clearly not persuaded themselves. Paul is trying to strengthen Timothy and say, Timothy, I believe that you have the faith to do this, to persevere. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You can feel Paul's concern for Timothy, can't you? That Timothy would be driven by fear instead of what he commends him for, which is his faith. And again, there's that contrast here. Faith versus fear. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. 
That's a call. Come suffer with me, Timothy. Don't be afraid of suffering. Be a man of faith and come share with me in suffering. Share in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. You don't have to be afraid of death, Timothy. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I suffered these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed until to him until that day. This is the conflict Does fear drive us or does faith in God's promises? This is the conflict. I don't want you to be driven by fear. I want you to be driven by faith. I want you to reach under the chair in front of you and pull out one of these green hymnals. And if there's not one in the chair in front of you, then find one. There's one under some chairs. And I want you to turn to 337. I just want to sing an old hymn of the people of God together. We'll close in prayer. And I'll lead. I'll do the hard part. And I want you to sing. 337. You got it? I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. But I know whom I have believed 
and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not when my Lord may come at night for noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the vale with him or meet him in the air. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. There's a verse that's left out of that that I'll read to you. That was in the hymn originally written as we close in prayer. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, help us not to be afraid. Help us not to be afraid for our lives. Help us not to be afraid for our children. Help us not to be afraid of what may come, whether poor days or great days. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us not to be afraid of suffering. Help us not to be afraid of sacrificing. Strengthen us. Give us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.